Yes, hello folks, welcome to Beyond the Pitch, I'm your host as always, Phil Brand, and absolutely delighted to be joined with the magnificent Gab Marcati, who I owe a massive thank you to, because we tried to do this show on Monday, and unfortunately, due to my ropey equipment, it did not uh, record properly, and he's kindly agreed to do this again, not that he hasn't got anything better to do than talk to me after a long football season, nonetheless, thank you all the same for doing it, Gab, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, but the football season's not over yeah. because we have an FA Cup coming up. We have a we have a championship playoff coming up. We Serie A is at the last dregs. There's Gonzalo Guin's, um record might might be broken, and then we get the Europa League and the Champions League. Man, it, this is uh, this is never ending. It, it's funny, you know. My wife's an American, and. She asked me, does it ever end? You know, because she's a football fan out here and it's totally different. It's like, what do you mean to see? I'm like, well, the season ended last week. And she goes, well, what are you talking about season ended? You're still watching United games coming up? I'm like, yeah, that part of that season ended, but there's still other games that just totally bemusing there. And so, uh, you want to hear something scary? Go ahead. It's less than 30 days to the Community Shield. I know, insane. Um, well, what, what will be interesting is if United uh, Wolves get to the, and of course Chelsea, which looks highly unlikely, uh, City, um, if they get to the final, then the UEFA Super Cup, I believe, is August 24th. They need at least 30 days between the end of the season and the start of the next, which is going to put them massively behind at the start of next season for fixtures. So... Uh, I think there's a positive if they go out of the Europa League in the in the semi-finals, and then there's a there isn't. So it's uh, it's just incredible. And uh, I was talking to Danny Higginbotham the other day about these games within three days. He's like, look, just because you had a couple of months off doesn't mean you can all of a sudden resume and play a game every three days. It's like, uh, you know, eventually that's going to tell. And uh, we started to see that towards the end. Nobody was perfect since the restart. I want to ask you about Juventus because they've got nine Scudettos in a row. Uh, didn't finish the season exceptionally well. Lots of question marks. They brought in Arthur for a lot of money. Pjanic is going to leave. Um, tell me, where does this Juventus team rate in comparison to previous Juventus teams and what will we see next season on their side? Well, I mean, the short answer is that if you compare it to recent seasons, it's, it's a much worse side. Um you know, somebody made the point that this Juve team have they they have all the negatives of Max Allegri and none of the <laughs> none of the strengths, and they have all the negatives of Manito Sarri and none of the strengths. And that's probably a little bit unkind um, because obviously we have seen them. You know, they played well against Inter Milan, home and away and stuff. But you know, you can probably can't count on on one hand the number of times that they've looked good this year. And and I think that's a problem. Now they won Serie A because they have better players and they have you know more than twice the wage bills anybody else, and because um, Inter threw points away and Lazio weren't too weren't obviously weren't ready and maybe Atalanta didn't realize quite what they could achieve. Um, but it's obvious that you know this season was a step back and. If you're going to say we took a step back because we're going in a different direction and we're going to take two steps forward next year, um, that's fine. And, and it was a big radical change with Sadly. But what I don't know and what I'm not convinced by is, you know, did you really embrace this change, this mm -hmm. radical change under Sadly, or did you 
did you ask him to succeed with Allegri's tools, which were very good tools, but, you know, a team with Cristiano Ronaldo is never going, you know, a 35-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo will never be a Sarri team as we know Sarri teams. You think I imagine since COVID, uh, obviously Juventus, of course, imposed their own uh, salary limit. I'm sure there must be a temptation on Juventus's part to want to part with Cristiano Ronaldo because it's an awful lot of money. Yeah, and look, he's a magnificent player, of course. Um, but the question is, is it really worth it? Do they really need Cristiano Ronaldo to win another Scudetto? It's great if it brings them a Champions League, but I think they could win it without him. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, in the end, you're going to have to get for, at some point, there's somebody at Juve who's going to get forensic about it, right? And he's costing Juve about $370 million over four years in in wages and transfer fee. He's obviously, you know, provided help on the pitch. He's obviously added prestige and, you know, commercial oomph. And, you know, there are people who make a living marketing men um, putting a dollar figure on that. I don't see how they how they think that they're getting the return that they wanted. And it's not Cristiano's fault because, you know, he had a good season this year. I think it's more to do with the fact that, you know, if you have Cristiano, then you reload, you go all in, and you try to win straight away. Um, and that means if you're, if you're done with Allegri, that's fine. But then you choose a different manager, you know, a manager who's not going to require time to build uh, and, and, and really put a stamp on the team. Um, and you're going to kind of operate in the present. Juve had that weird mix where they're trying to operate for the future. And and, and it's, you know, sometimes half measures are, are, are kind of the worst solution. Let me ask you about Milan, uh, because Pioli, of course, has done an exceptional job prior to Pioli coming in. Uh, they had, of course, Ralph Ranić lined up. Ralph Ranić no longer coming. Um, is this a case of Milan being caught in the present of the moment because Pioli's done so well, because this is the first time in a long time Milan have actually looked like they're a football club going somewhere? Uh, or was it a mistake to not to, to bring Ranić in the first place? I think bringing in Ranić um, made a lot of sense if you're going to bring him in for the role that he had at Leipzig. Um, in other words, sort of this, this uber technical director stroke recruitment guy who could attract and develop young talent, who would bring fresh ideas um, uh, to, to the recruitment side. Because, look, I mean, what the Red Bull group have done at Leipzig and Salzburg has, has just been absolutely phenomenal. And, and it fit Milan's blueprint. But the problem was Rangnick wanted to come in and not just do that part of the job, he also wanted to coach the team. Um, he basically wanted the sort of powers which, which nobody's had successfully since the days of Sir Alex Ferguson. And you know, to paraphrase Lloyd Benson, Ralph, you're no Sir Alex, you know. Um, and, and I think that came to a head. I think the best solution would have been trying to work something out with Rangnick, where you say, look. Stefano Pioli can play football in many different ways. He's got many different styles. He does not have a big ego. Let him work under you for a year, and then we'll see where we are a year from now while you, you, know, while you find your feet, while you work on the recruitment, while you, you know, help overhaul the areas that need to be overhauled. Um, Rangnick said nine. He wanted total power, and he wanted total commitment, and that's his right. And I think the, 
team kind of dodged a bullet um, because I think it would have been a very difficult situation. That said, um, you know, the, the reasons why they wanted Rangnick in the first place are still there mm-hmm. and are still valid. Um, this team needs to, needs to live by what it says it does, which is let's go, let's scout, let's use analytics, let's use our intelligence, let's bring in undervalued assets and and grow that way let's not grow with you know big veterans who who kind of provide a temporary patch um and and you need personality and you need direction to do that and now that rangnick's not coming i think you know there is a risk that they're still going to be caught between those two approaches let me switch our attention to england because uh prior to doing this podcast the news broke that the saudi back consortium led by amanda stavely is finally withdrawn its bid to buy Newcastle United. Uh, they cited both time and uh, the global uncertainty. What's going on there, Gav? Why is what what has a caused that deal to drag on so long? And is it really global uncertainty that's caused them to withdraw? I don't know. I mean, I think there were so many question marks about it um, from the start. Like, you know, let's let's take a step back. Leave all the the human rights issues and Amanda Stavely and the Barclays case, all the stuff out. But, you know, the thinking was, oh, Saudi are going to come in. And, and this is the, you know, PIF is the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. Even though they try to pretend that it's not and stuff, you can go on their website, you see who's on their board, and they're all government ministers. Um, you read their mission statement, and it is, and it says that we want Saudi Arabia to have a diversified future and not rely on um, on, on, on natural gas and, and oil and whatever, and so we're going to invest in all these different things and on behalf of the people of, of, of Saudi Arabia. So it effectively is entirely comparable to the Abu Dhabi United Group mm-hmm. and to the Qataris of Paris Saint-Germain. Let's get that out of the way first. But then the key thing is, if you're going to do that, right, if you're going to do that because you want to make a profit, you got to ask, and I say this with the greatest respect to Newcastle, the Northeast, why Newcastle and why now? Because mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, you know, their financial fair play exists. It is a thing, both in the Premier League and in, um, and in Europe. You're not going to be able to come in and make the massive investments that Paris Saint-Germain and, um, and Manchester City did to go and rebuild the club quickly. And you're also buying into Newcastle, which, you know, relative to... Manchester and Paris, and you know it feels weird putting Manchester and Paris in the same sentence, but it is a much smaller, <laughs> it is a much smaller place. It's a place that's you know economically depressed in relative terms to those other areas. So it was always going to be tough. So then you ask yourself, well, why are you doing this? Is this a vanity purchase? Is this? It just seemed to me like it was never super clear. So I can buy the global uncertainty aspect to some degree, but I also think a bigger thing was they just felt frustrated because I mean, what four months? four months yeah. waiting for an answer. Um, you know, was this the Premier League's way of saying like, oh, if we just never say yes or no, we'll go, <laughs> we'll go away. away I, soon, yeah. <laughs> I, I really feel for Newcastle fans because, you know, I, I feel like the mainstream media has either depicted them, you know, as a bunch of fools who just wanted Saudi money um, and didn't care about human rights or whatever. Um, but the reality is most of these people just they were well aware of, of, of why it was problematic in many ways, but equally they just wanted Mike Ashley gone. And, you know, to be, to be strung along for so long, um, 
isn't really fair to them either, that it should take so long to get an answer. Or in fact, to not get an answer, right. as we discovered. Yeah, I agree. And I think there may have been some other factors. Obviously, the piracy thing was an issue, of course. The situation at Wigan, which was deeply embarrassing. Um, and of course, you know, we've saw what, what happened with Man City, with the FFP. Do you think those things had any influence on um, there being a greater scrutiny on them? Um, I don't think so, because... Look, I mean, in the end, the greater scrutiny is going to be there, right? The, the, the Man City thing, we're talking about events that happened five years ago. Um, so I don't know that they said, oh, well, we were planning on doing something like Man City or alleged to have done. You know, I, if they did that, then they were real idiots because, you know, the world is different now. Um, and the financial fair play environment is different. Um, I just think that there's a lot of factors there. The piracy obviously is one factor. It was also, how do we know that Saudi Arabia's government isn't going to get crossed with Qatar again and go back to the piracy to go and mess up the Qataris? Because there you're talking about governments and you're talking stuff that's much bigger than football, right? What guarantees do we have that that's not going to happen? I think that that definitely played a part. Um, I also think, and I thought this was kind of weirdly underreported, the guy who owns Sheffield United is the cousin of MBS. Yep. And so, and, you know, you kind of, and, you know, that's an absolute monarchy. He's a, mm-hmm. it's, he's a, he's a, he's not his cousin, he's also his subject. I mean, you know, that is, that's a major conflict of interest in so many ways. Um, I, I just think, you know, and maybe they're like, ooh, I don't know, I'm, I'm purely speculating here. Maybe the Premier League was like, all right, can we use these motivations without getting sued? Let us employ a whole bunch of high-priced leech lawyers. Uh, sorry, I don't have a high opinion of lawyers, as you know. Not all of them, <laughs> but most of them. Uh, to give us an opinion. These guys are slow-rolling and slow-rolling mm-hmm. it. You know, and eventually the Saudis just said, you know what? Grab your family jewels and make a decision. No, you're not making a decision. Fine, we'll walk away. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm not going to rule out the fact that Ashley's taken a beating in this as well. I mean, he really has. Yeah that maybe Ashley goes back and says, guys, can we work a deal? Can we do something? I mean, you know, the Rubin brothers who, right, Amanda Stavely, we don't know how much money she really has, but the Rubin brothers are legit multi-billionaires, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're already involved in, in football. Jamie Rubin, I think, has an interest in QPR or whatever. I mean, if they think this is such a great deal, we're not talking, you're not buying a club, you're not buying Manchester United for, for $10 billion. You know, you're buying, you're making a 300 million pound investment, which is, or I think even less, slightly less than that. Maybe the Rubin brothers come back and maybe they find some other wealthy friends and and go and and and, and buy this them buy this themselves. Maybe maybe with Amanda. Amanda seems to know a lot of rich people, you know, and and maybe there's another way to do this. I, I think if the interest was there, if the business case was there from Amanda Stavely uh, and from the Rubin brothers, I don't think that has gone away. I don't want to give people a glimmer of hope. But, you know, it's not like these are the only people in the world who have money. Yeah, uh, let's switch your attention to Manchester City, of course. It um, wasn't a great season for, for Manchester City last season, nine defeats. They've already started to address that by spending, it uh, looks like, about $45 million on Nathan Aki. Is he the answer to their problems? Um, well, it's curious that they bring in Nathan Aki, who's a left-footed centre-back, when their best centre-back is already a left-footed centre-back. Um, 
I mean, obviously, you're talking about two great players. You know, Laporte, I think, before his injury, he was one of the top three or four center backs um, in the Premier League, in my opinion. And I think you can go back to that. But they clearly need help um, at the back. And I don't think Ake is going to be their only signing back there. But, but yeah, he'll, he'll certainly help. Um, of course, let me ask you about Manchester United and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, this strong finish this season. The season broken down into two parts. First half is was dreadful. Uh, we've covered it before, but why that has happened? Poor recruitment. What does he need to get this summer to make sure Manchester United have a, have a title challenge? And is a title challenge next season uh, re- reasonable to expect of Solskjaer? Surely that should be the bar for him. I mean, all right. So first of all. I think this next season is the first season in which you can fairly judge Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because, you know, he inherited, you know, he inherited a dumpster fire um, from Mourinho. Um, you know, not that Mourinho made bad decisions, but Mourinho, I mean, he made bad decisions too, but Mourinho had built a team for him and Solskjaer is a different person and you come in halfway through the season. And then this season, I don't know what the hell happened last season's transfer window, but last summer I thought, was just really, really poor. Um, they left themselves way short in midfield and up front. And, you know, I've had some people on Twitter saying, oh, what are you talking about? Look at Mason Greenwood. Well, I think the evidence that they left themselves way short in midfield and up front comes in the fact that they signed an attacking midfielder and a center forward in, in January. Um, so I think those are definitely big mitigating circumstances for, um, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um, as well as the pandemic too. I mean, you got to factor that in. And, you know, next season, you know, we can see him. He'll have more of a preseason, although not a great preseason, as, as we said, with United, especially if United go far in the Europa League. Right. But United, you know, United have resources. They can build on what they have. Pogba's fit. You have Bruno Fernandez. There's areas to address. Um, I don't think they're in a bad spot. But what I would say is they finished 33 points behind Liverpool. Um, I think you have to go back to 1979 to find the last time uh, United were so far away from top of the table. And in fact, if you calculate three points for a win, you have to go back all the way to the year that they were in the second division in, was it 75? 79, I think we were talking about this before, I think it was 79 was the last time the gap was this big. Yeah, but then if you calculate three points or a win, you've got to yeah. go back all the way back to 75. Oh, and were, I mean, yeah, 75, 76, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, that is a big mountain to climb. And you have Manchester City who, you know, I think were much better than their table, than, than yeah. their gap with the top mm-hmm. suggests. So, you know, I don't think it's, you know, challenge for the Premier League or bust for Solskjaer. Not just yet. I want, if I'm a United fan, I want to see progress this year, whichever way you want to define it. And then, you know, I'm not going to tell him, Ole, you have to, you have to win the Premier League, otherwise you're out. Because I don't think that'd be fair or logical. I want to ask you a two-part question, Gab, about the other end of the table. Because uh, what on earth would the Pazzo family do? Um, because uh, with getting rid of their manager with two games to go, and uh, is Eddie High of the reputation that he deserves? Should he get a bigger job than Bournemouth? So, uh, what's your take on both those questions? So I was mystified and shocked when when Pearson left. Um, I, I 
it is a problem which has some knowledge. I've heard certain rumors that were reported and then denied by the club that you know there were there was tension involving some senior players and the manager. Um, equally, others have told me no, that was not the case. Um, that the club were simply looking for sort of an instant bounce. I, I suspect the truth will come out later. It is one of those things where you know if they stay up, they look like geniuses. Um, and look, if, if Femi Martinez doesn't make that tremendous save and, you know, if goal line technology works, then maybe Walker right. end up staying up, right? I mean, you know, let's, let's not forget, Aston Villa are still a Premier League club because goal line technology worked and because the VAR mm-hmm. didn't have the balls to do his job. Um, and I'm not going to blame, I think, Michael Oliver, whoever the referee was in that game because they were unsighted. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, it's fine margins there. Uh, the same goes for Eddie Howe. It's, it's a tough one with Howe because I think, you know, he built up a great reputation. Um, but if you look at Bournemouth's transfer history, it's very odd because they actually they spend a lot of money on players and then they don't play them. And then they play sort of some of the, some of the same guys. Like, and then, you know, they, look, they play good football um, for a while. I don't know. Eddie Howe has been there a very long time. He dominates the club. He's got full powers. I think it's a very difficult transition to make when you're from that environment to a bigger environment. I think that might give some other clubs cold feet about bringing him in. Um, Bournemouth is a pretty unique sort of place. Um, I hope it doesn't penalize him. I think he's definitely made mistakes over the years. He's definitely unorthodox. Um, but he's definitely intense. But he's also, I think, a, a very bright manager. We shall see. Gab, thank you so much, man, for doing this. I really, really appreciate it and re-recording it. I'm very grateful to you, and I enjoy what little time you actually managed to get off with your family. Thank you so much, man. All the best. Cheers, man. Pleasure's Cheers, all mine. Thanks, buddy. Bye. Take care.